Welcome to the Fully Vested Podcast, brought to you by Denton's and Macara Society, focusing on venture capital and all matters legal. Remember, listeners can raise any legal issues you want to discuss. Please see our podcast description for a link and details of how to do that and other documents or materials that we refer to. I am Tim Brownstone. I'll be the chair each week, joined by Joe Altendorf, partner and head of venture capital at Denton's, and Joe Collingwood, an associate and rising star at the Denton's venture capital team. Denton's come from the legal side, and I sit with two hats, both as a CEO and founder of Chimera, a smart technology company, and one of the executives within Kairos UK, a collection of entrepreneurs striving together to make the world a better place. As you might expect, there's a short health warning, and it falls to the non-lawyer to read it out, so bear with me. This podcast is not designed to provide legal or other advice or give rise to solicitor client relationship. You should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Specialist legal advice should be taken in relation to specific circumstances. The views and opinions expressed by those on the podcast are their own and do not represent Denton's, Kairos, or other organizations that they are from. Please see Denton's.com for legal notices. So jumping into the conversation and to provide some context on how this all came about, I'll hand off to Joe Altendorf, who I first met on a sunny day in Lisbon. Yeah, that's right, Tim. Uh, that seems like ages ago now. I think I was judging on a pitching event and you were pitching. You were indeed. Uh, did rather well. Of course. Uh, the rest is history. Um, and, you know, you and I got chatting, realised that we knew a few folk in common, uh, particularly around the Kairos Society, and wondered whether there was a way in which Dentons and Kairos could partner together and, and put on some events. We've done a number of panel sessions, dinners, focusing on investment terms, women in tech, I think was the last one, yeah. and um, all going well. But we realized that there's a whole community out there that don't necessarily have access to a lot of the great content that we're producing. Wondered whether we could do that in a more convenient manner, and hopefully this is that. And that's just it. Convenience is king. Each of our podcasts will cover a specific theme, and given the two Joe's expertise, I thought we should start the series with funding. So let's break it down and start with the basics. Joe Collingwood, how can a company get money? Yeah, so broadly, there are four ways in which a company can get money. The first is through equity funding. The second is through traditional debt. Uh, third is through grant funding. And fourth, obviously, is, is a re revenue production, uh, which for an early stage company is um, potentially less likely. So today we're going to focus on uh, equity as the well, means of fundraising. We'll focus on that, but I, I just wanted to say that as a company that did bootstrap and customer funded from the start, mm -hmm. um, it shouldn't be forgotten. So, uh, but you know, it's a bit more simplistic in the terms of you sell a service or product and you get money for that. So we'll park that for now. And as you say, we'll focus today on not just the different types of funding, but the legal differences. And I'm going to jump straight in and perhaps ask um, maybe a, not an awkward question, but uh, I'm going to go straight for it and say, which is the best type of funding for a company? I mean, I, I thought initially, Tim, there might not be an answer to that, but actually there is an answer to that question, which is clearly revenue funding is the best sort of funding um, and you know, does need to be the goal of, of every company to, to be self-funding in that, in that perpetual manner. Um, but I think then outside of that, clearly, it's, it's got to be a horses for courses answer. Yeah. Um, there are pros and cons of each. Um, you know, let, let's take them very broadly. I mean, clearly, the best thing about grant funding is, generally speaking, you don't have to pay it back, um, and right. no one's going to. There's going to be no dilution because you've got it. Um, but grant funding is going to be in pretty narrow perimeters. Now, those narrow perimeters might align with your business. 
and then slam dunk as long as you can submit the research report or whatever you need to do the, the application to get it then you're done um debt funding again no dilutive effect on your share cap table but you know the pain in the neck is you've got to pay it back <laughs> um so um so then if you say well equity funding is kind of the one that everyone's talking about and what makes their headlines uh vc funding or angel funding or whatever it might be and so let's maybe try and unpack a few of those terms yeah so if we were to hypothetically think we're, we're a group of friends we have an idea we're going to start a business so we're, we're starting from the beginning we don't necessarily need a large amount of bat in that scenario is it going to be quicker to try and raise equity are we going to look into debt perhaps just to get the ball rolling because you know certainly here in the uk there are a number of government backed debt schemes as well so if we start with the, the the super micro and then we go through companies at different stages and perhaps as you say unpack those terms as we go what should be considered as that those sort of three friends starting their first business yeah yeah so the, you know the proverbial you know three friends in their mum's garage uh, setup. So um, look, I mean, I think generally speaking, you're not going to get debt to begin with unless you're benefiting from some special scheme because no one's going to lend you money if you don't have any revenue. It's like trying to get a mortgage if you don't have a job. You know, it's going to be very challenging. I know you and I have just had a conversation about that as well. Um, so really what we're thinking about is equity. And let's be honest, you know, at the moment, if you're in your mom's garage, then the most obvious equity provider may well be the bank of mom and dad, you know, or as we probably more commonly call it, uh, friends and family. Yeah. So, you know, that that is someone who is going to chuck some money into your business. And really, they're going to do that because of faith or a connection to you as a as an entrepreneur to build a business it's not arm's length you know this is not like going to a vc or going to an angel and asking them for money with it with an investment proposal this is a, a kind of gift i would have thought yeah and it, it's interesting because quite often when you speak to investors you know the the thing that comes up time and time again and i do it myself and the small investments i've made outside of chimera is you know we're we're supporting the, the people or the person so it's the team that ultimately counts the most but nothing more so than friends and family because quite often those friends and family may not really know much about the business themselves but they are supporting the individuals absolutely um but certainly when i went about it and it for me it was very important to let friends and family know that while you know i got that they wanted to support me and that meant a lot to me equally investing in a private company you can't just take that money out as and when um so perhaps if we can talk about some of the uh the, the requirements in terms of once your money's into a company you know it are there standard periods that it's going to stay there for within a private entity and how might it be extracted down line before we get into sort of some of the latter stage funding mechanism yeah so this is where i think you need to just give a bit of a health warning uh when you are talking to the friends and family so it needs to essentially be be thought of as a, a gift um uh, the kind of the terminology that the that the advertisers use um friends and family shouldn't be giving anything that they wouldn't feel comfortable losing because getting that money back is uh would happen at um much later down the line if at all i mean you know the the, the event horizon for an exit is going to be a you know, at least five years, five to ten years, let's say, for the for the sake for the sake of argument, yeah. and you've got to figure that the business won't be paying any dividends during that period of time. So, you know, if you wanted to put it into investment speak, you could think of it as a, you know, as a rolled up dividend that's paid at the end on the exit. But really, you know, 
if that money would be better put in a bank earning interest for your friends and family uh, or, or elsewhere, then that's got to be the better place for it. Yeah, certainly from, from my side, it was if you want quick access to this cash, then you shouldn't be putting it into the company. Um, but there are mechanisms certainly here in the UK that can make it advantageous to make investments. So, for example, we have the SEIS and the EIS mm. schemes. So perhaps if we could just run a little bit through that before we move into some of the other mechanisms. Yeah. Well, it's actually a really good way to segue into the next tier of investment, which is probably angel funding, you know. So and what, what do we mean by angels? What we're talking about really is high net worth. So I should probably explain what we mean by high net worth. I mean, people with more money than they need to meet their income, their, their expenditure needs. Um, and so um, those individuals will typically have a, a high income tax burden. And so the UK government has created a couple of schemes which stand out. So SEIS and, and EIS, uh, those are both tax reliefs which allow you to offset uh, the amount of your investment against your own income tax uh, burden. And so the reason why that's attractive is obviously it reduces your, your income tax uh, burden or at least offsets it against that investment. Um, and so that can be really attractive for people who are in the, in the you know, additional or high rate tax bans. Exactly. And it's worth noting that the difference between the two, um, so SEIS is for a company that's less than two years old, and EIS is for a company older than that. I believe there is an absolute limit, but I'm afraid I forget what it is. Um, but it's not just the income tax. There is also the protection if the company was to fail. Uh, again, you will have to look up the rates and we can provide a link to, um, to a relevant area for that in the description. But that, that's something that I think is very good for whether it's you're a first time investor or whether you're a professional angel investor mm. is having that protection on, on the loss because ultimately that makes it easier to commit to mm. a high risk company, um, which ultimately, regardless of how amazing right. each business is, we're all high risk yeah. at the beginning. And, and that's true. And this, you know, kind of then, you know, linking into what, what how does that money actually can come in? Yeah. And I suppose the great thing about each of those tax releases is they require an investment in ordinary shares. Yes. Um, and so, again, kind of trying to jargon bust some of this. So ordinary shares is just the normal plain vanilla share that all companies would be set up with. Um, and so for, for all intents and purposes, just think of that as a normal share. And we'll come on to other types of shares later on in, in this podcast or others, I'm sure. Um, and so that means that the investment terms that are going to go with that angel invest, investment are going to be of a more straightforward variety. Yeah. And I think it's worth just giving a little bit of information here, purely because it's something that I'd say I did wrong uh, when I set up Chimera, uh, is that when setting up and incorporating for the first time, it doesn't seem very important how many shares you issue because <laughs> it may just be you in my case or it may be three of you if we're using the uh, hypothetical scenario so what is a good number of shares to start company life with because in my head i thought oh 100 shares that's good because then it's you know nicely divisible but actually that means that each share you subsequently sell is quite a large chunk mm. of equity now we did subdivide so you know that we basically took the capital value of the company and divided that through more shares later down the line. Um, but is there sort of a, a good starting place that you'd recommend for sort of the number of shares? I'm not sure there is a perfect answer to that. Um, cap tables do become tricky um, and it's worth a bit, a bit like there are certain other financial matters 
whenever numbers are concerned, founders should really start to pay attention and have a proper spreadsheet to set this all out. Yeah. Work out how many shares you've currently got, what the investments get, how many shares the new investor is going to get, what the dilutive effect that is on everyone else and what the output looks like. I think the reality is that much like if you were dividing a pie, the more slices that you've got to that pie to begin with, the easier it becomes to invite a greater number of people to that party and give them a slice of pie. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely would start with, you know, a greater number than 10, you know, 100 or 1,000 shares perhaps. Typically, they start off as being penny shares or 10p shares, but the reality is you can actually divide those shares into a number that's smaller than a penny, yes. even though, of course, we don't have a coin that you know, that represents that, that level of money in the UK. Yeah. Um, you can, all of these problems are surmountable, but I think you know, starting with you know, say 1,000 shares or 10,000 shares is probably not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, inevitably, you're going to have to do something because unless someone's going to invest by a number of shares that comes in as being divisible by 10 or 5, you know, you're going to struggle. Yeah. Um, and I suppose if we were looking at this arithmetically, we might think that 12 was a better number because you know, it divides by 3, 4, 6, 1, 12. Um, but I, I don't really know anyone who sits on their cap table like that. So we, we've set the company up, we've incorporated, we've got, for example, 10,000 shares at a penny each. We've solidified our ideas. We, we have a, a pitch deck for a hypothetical company. Legally speaking, what might we wish to have in place or be looking to get in place, perhaps from um, our first round of angel investments, so typically referred to as the seed round, uh, is it a prerequisite to have shareholder agreements, our custom company articles rather than just the model articles in place before that round? Or is that something that we might get in place with those initial investors as sort of subscribers to that agreement? Yeah, so let's take those in, um, starting with a, sh with a shareholders agreement. There's no uh, formal prerequisites to have that in place uh, prior to taking on angel investment or, or indeed any other type of investment. Um, anybody who's putting in a significant chunk of money, um, and by that I mean probably something in the hundreds of, hundreds of thousands, will probably want to see some sort of shareholders agreement in place from the time at which they invest their money going forward. Um, that shareholders agreement will just govern the relationship between the investor, the company and any other shareholders, so the founders um, who are already in the business, the, the relationship between those, those people going forwards. Um, in terms of articles, which are the kind of constitution of the company, um, the rules by which that company is run, again, any company will, once it's set up needs to have articles from, from the date on which it's set up. Um, an investor might want to see new articles put in place from the time at which they invest, which again might set out some bespoke arrangements between the investor, the founder and the company. Um, that would be t tied up as part of the investment. Typically, angel investors might not be quite so concerned about having bespoke articles. Uh, that might come further down the line as you start to look at VC funding or, or corporate venture capital. And it's, in, in my experience, certainly with the articles, uh, we did have them in place before we first raised, but we did ra we raised quite late on having customer funded for the, the first sort of two and a half, three years of the company's life. Um, but we made the decision that the likelihood is that these articles weren't going to survive, you know, beyond certainly sort of a seeds, very unlikely that to go beyond a series A. Um, so it, it seems as though it's a case of be sensible, 
make sure that you're covering as many bases as possible. But as a small company with limited resources, you're not going to look to spend thousands on on getting those sort of that initial articles drafted and perfect for expectations that it's going to live, you know, the company's lifetime. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, Tim. And, and you touch on a good point that it's especially for early stage companies, it's always worth thinking about where money is best spent money obviously um which which is precious and, and sometimes hard to come by at that stage in a company's development and as you as you say spending thousands of pounds on getting the exact right set of articles in place is not often the best place to, to be spending that money it's worth noting um that that we have what are called model articles which are kind of statutory articles um in the most in most cases for early stage companies they're they're perfectly reasonable and, and do a good job um and and there's not much need to deviate from those. I guess the only things that you might want to think about are um, the number of directors that a company has, which is set out in its articles. Um, we're thinking about things like that. But on the whole, a set of model articles is, is perfectly adequate for, a, for an early stage company. Yeah. It's actually hard to think of, uh, you know, if we talk, going back to your, you know, three friends in their mum's garage, it's hard to imagine a circumstance in which the model articles wouldn't be perfectly suitable for that initial business. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as Joe said, it's only really once third party investors come in and they want to secure some of their own rights, which probably go above and beyond what they would get under law. Yep. And, and it's worth remembering that. So really they're asking for something above and beyond what they would get. That, that then there's a negotiation. Of course, the reason why they can ask for those additional rights is because they're the ones holding the money. Right, yes. Um, now, I just, I think this is, this is a potentially confusing point as well, clarify it for anyone who's listening, which is kind of what's, what, why have a shareholders agreement and articles? Um, because essentially they do cover a lot of the same ground. And often the exercise for lawyers is after you've negotiated the shareholders agreement to then replicate provisions of that into the articles to make sure that despite the difference in the documents that they they are uh, working together yeah and the, the key difference is probably to remember that the articles have to be filed and are publicly available mm -hmm. so they're filed at a place called company's house whereas the shareholders agreement is a private document so it is possible to put things in the shareholders agreement which would be kept confidential yes um and uh and those need not necessarily be in the articles um, whereas there are certain minimum things that have to go into the articles and then do need to be filed publicly. Yeah. Okay. So our hypothetical company, they've perhaps got uh, their model articles or they've got, got, got a slightly refined custom one that they've uh, drafted with their lawyers. They have their shareholders agreement in place. Now we're coming up to, to raising the round. So in my experience, I mean, on, on Chimera's cap table, we have private investors that have gone from as low as sort of £5,000 per investment up to in excess of £100,000. So an angel, there can be huge variances. Um, and I'm not going to touch too much on where to find them because there are many places and we are more focusing, say, on the legal matters. But when it comes to engaging with a private individual, is there anything that the company should do to certify that this individual is someone who I can discuss investment matters with and solicit that investment, or is it an open market? That's absolutely right, Tim. So what you're talking about is fin financial promotions law. Yeah. Um, so in a nutshell, it's actually illegal, unless you're a regulated individual, to promote the investment in shares of a company in the UK. And if you thought about that for a moment, everyone would realize that, you know, otherwise you'd be a stockbroker or someone else who's, who's doing that activity professionally. What we need to be careful of here, okay, then is working out what that balance is. So clearly it's not a cent to all. 
you need to be sending that to an exempt individual or doing that through some kind of network or other function where you can be sure that you're speaking to the right sort of people with appropriate disclaimers attached to your documentation. Yeah, and that, you know that's one of the advances of an angel network is that you can assume that everyone there has self-certified that they are appropriate to be uh, spoken to. And the same goes crowdfunding platforms. There's a requirement when investors sign up to those to self-certify as a, as a high net worth. Okay, so Hypothetical Company has brought in their seed round. Well done them. Um, they're now growing the company, scaling nicely, and they're, they're looking for something larger so they can really accelerate their company growth, maybe even expand internationally. And this is where we get into the realms of you will still be able to raise some angel money, but eventually you start getting into company valuations that are perhaps a, a little pricier than what the average angel is looking to invest in. Um, while all of those investors will have uh, their preemption rights if it's attached to the share so that they can follow their money. Um, let's talk a bit about institutional investment because this is where uh, certainly I have less experience myself personally, but we're getting into areas where in terms of the uh, negotiations, they can be more thorough and perhaps more taxing, certainly on the company side. Um, so if we could have a, a quick rundown on different types of institutional investment, and then we can break down into some of the legalities associated to them. Yeah, so look, and let, let's try to get, get on quickly into the legal terms. So really, we're talking about taking investment from a VC or venture capital fund. You know, so bear in mind, that is a fund of investors who have pulled together some investment that's managed by one of the brands that you might see out there in the market or a company so-called corporate venture capitals that might be a big institution typically in the sector in which you engage which is looking to invest in a smaller company one way or another they're going to invest a more significant sum we're probably talking millions of pounds here now into your business but still for a minority share but they're going to want to protect that investment and crucially the return on their investment and make sure that they have certain rights which allow them to monitor the business going forward. So that either prevents the business from doing things which are untoward or out of the ordinary. It probably allows them a level of board control by having a director or at least the opportunity to be a director so they can monitor that month to month, some access to financial information, and then probably some assurances from the business when they first invest that it is the sort of business that they expect it to be i.e. that its accounts are accurate and that it owns the IP or whatever other assets it needs to. Yeah. And, you know, without using any legal terminology, that's kind of what an investment agreement is. Mm -hmm. And so if we then go on to look at each of the terms, you know, through that contract, you'll start to see how each of those actually relate to the overall objective of what's trying to be achieved. And I would say, much like anything in life, if you kind of focus on the outcome, then some of that process starts to make a bit more sense. Otherwise, you can get bogged down in the weeds of a particular issue and lost track entirely of what it is you're actually trying to secure. Yeah. And is it likely that with a institutional investor that we're going to have a straight equity round like we have done with our angel investors? Or are there other forms of equity funding that will perhaps be a bit more complicated? Yeah, that's a really good question, Tim. Um, and I think before we get on to answering that, it's worth thinking about uh, a little bit about process um, and picking up the response to that question in the round. 
So Joe and I have been doing quite a lot of work recently trying to figure out how we can close around as quickly as possible uh, with as few uh, problems as possible and particularly thinking about how we stop minority shareholders, you know, potentially angels or friends and family who, as you mentioned earlier, might follow follow their investment and, and invest some additional money as part of a, a more institutional round. Uh, how you can stop the you know unavailability, say, of those people from, from holding up a round. Um, and it's worth just talking about, in that context, talking about term sheets, uh, which Joe, I think, alluded to earlier, um, and some of the some of the kind of key provisions that, that you'd find in a term sheet that then inform what goes into the, the kind of investment documentation. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly seen friends that have had rounds grind to a halt. I don't think quite fall apart entirely, but because of someone being unavailable and on holiday and not able to access them at the time of their needed. So within a term sheet, we've we've got sort of what Joe described earlier, where the the company or the executives are giving guarantees that what the information they're presenting is fair and accurate, et cetera. What else might we find there before we get back on to answering the, the question about structuring the round in terms of what kind of investment we're taking? Yeah, so you're, you're talking about warranties, which we'll come to. Um, I think so just to give a sort of some, some broad detail, a term sheet is, a, is effectively a, a non-binding document that sets out um, an agreement between the company, the founders and, and an investor that wants to come in that kind of sets out at a high level the terms on which that investment is going to be made. There are a few key things that will need to be uh, set out in the term sheet. First one is the composition of the board. So that is how many directors you have, who they are, who has the right to appoint them. Um, there's, a, there's a number of things to consider here. Um, investors will almost always want some sort of representation on the board, or, or sorry, a, a key investor will always want some sort of representation on the board to make sure, as Joe said earlier, that you know things are going in the right direction and that they're able to monitor and have some some input on on the direction of the company. Another key key term which will be set out in, in the term sheet is what we call vesting vesting arrangements. Uh, we will cover that in, a, in, in I think, the next podcast. Uh, whole, a whole, whole nother podcast. Yeah, whole nother podcast a, yeah. We, could, we could spend hours on that. Uh, we'll try and keep it to 30 minutes, but um, that, that's a kind of key and fairly, always fairly heavily negotiated area, which, as I say, we'll, we'll cover in due course. Um, the next is information rights. So that's talking about the kind of the key rights that a shareholder or an investor will have as, as part of their investment what information rights they might have, uh, what rights to financial information. Again, this is all about making sure that somebody who's putting money into a company is able to properly monitor monitor the business and, and make sure that it's going in the right direction, see whether any of their input is needed um, or, or any changes are needed. I think the key point on that for me, because on the face of it, that sounds like a fairly innocuous clause, you know, kind of, can we see your accounts if we ask them? Well, the answer must surely be yes, you know, if you've just invested millions of pounds. But I think the way or the place where I've seen it fall down is if the company isn't producing that regular information. And there comes a point in time when you say, well, look, you know, you're now you know, valued as a multi-million pound business. So fair enough, you're going to have to start producing monthly or quarterly accounts or other financial reporting stats for your investors. That goes without saying. But what you don't want that to become is a job in and of itself, you know, so you want the reporting requirements to your investors to coincide with your regular reporting to your board anyhow. And you want the format of those to kind of gel to the extent that you can. You don't want to have to produce one set of accounts for your investor and then one set of useful accounts for your board that actually allow you to look at how the business is performing. 
quite and certainly uh, what I do at Chimera is um, we have a fully updated data room which is kept up to date on a quarterly basis right well you're doing and, it properly <laughs> and that's where you can find the the quarterly management accounts all of the quarterly reports etc go in there but I also have you know companies I've invested in who I'm lucky if we hear from them once a year yeah uh, you know I may I'll know the individual personally to, to reach out to of course but you know I'm, I'm a fairly hands-off investor myself because I'm busy doing my own thing yeah. so I you know but you know that that information isn't always as freely given not because it's uh, being withheld perhaps but just because the reporting structure that company hasn't been mm. well established um, I mean I always think it's a good thing for companies to be speaking to their shareholders on a regular basis anyhow rather than being that person who only contacts them when you need money <laughs> so, yes, quite. you know it's kind of always encouraging and certainly i like it when i'm on the other side as well which is you know how is the business performing let's hear the good news yeah rather than just hear, oh, you know we're at the end of our runway and can we have another fiver please well but similarly uh before we get back on to uh, sort of joe picking up on the question i asked earlier it's important to remember and something that you know i found out through experience that you don't always just want to report the good things either because ultimately the people that can help you <laughs> quickest and are most able are likely to be your investors whether they're institutional whether they're angel investors they're likely to have far more experience certainly than a first-time founder does and so that there, there will come a point in i'm pretty sure every founder's life where something hasn't gone the way that you expected it to go yeah and you're thinking well i don't really want to tell the investors this because this is bad but actually being upfront about that, A, means that you've broken the news before they find it out from somewhere else, but B, it means that they can help you either mitigate any you know, potential damage that it could do or help you know structure something else to get you back into position. I mean, that's a lesson in PR and communications, really, isn't it, Tim? You know, and it's kind of just as as we all become a bit more media savvy in our in our day to day social media filled lives, you know, this idea of owning a story or managing that news cycle. And yeah, OK, I mean, it might not be you know, six o'clock news stuff. But uh, as far as your shareholders are concerned, yeah, you've got to you've got to manage that and, and, and make sure that the bad news is presented in the right way as well as the good news. On the theme of bad news, an investor is going to have certain rights attached to their investment in case things go really wrong. So perhaps you could tell me a bit about those. I believe they're called veto rights. Yeah, absolutely. So and this is the, the kind of last thing that I wanted to touch on um, in that discussion of, you know, key things in a term sheet. Um, as you say, they're called consent rights or, or veto matters. Um, these are kind of fundamental things or decisions that a company might take that require the consent of um, either one investor or, or a group of investors or a certain majority of investors um, in order for the company to actually um, take take those decisions. We're talking here about fundamental things. Um, and as you say, it's often things that are that, that might be decisions that might be taken when things are going wrong. So it might be whether or not a company takes on some additional equity funding or debt funding to try and inject some new cash into the business. Uh, it might be, for example, even as serious as whether or not to, to wind up the company. Uh, it might also include some other some other kind of less serious things like um, significant amount of capital expenditure. Um, but but those are the again protections for the investor to make sure that there aren't significant business decisions being taken without their consent. Okay, well that certainly makes sense. Um, so how does that actually get enshrined into some form of an agreement? 
Yeah, so look, so it, there's going to be contractual provisions. So there's a contract between the investor and the shareholder where they can enforce those rights under a contract, but they're also going to be attached to these preference shares that we've kind of skirted around on a couple of occasions, which is this new type of share. So different to the ordinary share that I talked about earlier on. Those preference shares, the holders of those preference shares are going to have rights to do certain things, which would include these veto rights. Okay, and so we know now how to put it into a document, but just as one last question, specifically, what is a preference share? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> the ultimate question. So a, a preference share clearly gets the holder of it a preference. What is that preference? The preference is to either get their money back or to convert that share into ordinary shares and then participate as pro rata with all of the other shareholders on an exit. And so why might they undertake that decision? It's because they then get a, a guaranteed return of their investment if the money's there, or if the company's been a great success and the value of the ordinary shares has risen since the point that they invest, then they would convert and get the price back per share that everyone else would get. It's a huge topic. We could really talk about it for hours. It's something that I find very interesting. You guys have careers in, so I'm hoping you do too. Well, I'm trying to make a career out of it. But yeah, so I'm going to bring it to a wrap for this episode, and we're going to cover off different investment-related uh, questions in future ones. The next episode is going to be looking into how to structure vesting agreements for co-founders and board members. So everybody that's listening, thank you very much. Joes, thank you for being here with me. Pleasure. And we'll speak to you all soon.